0: This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Aram Shabanian. He's an independent researcher and member of the Armenian diaspora community in the US. He knows a lot about the Nagorno-Karabakh war that's been going on between Armenia and Azerbaijan pretty much since 1988. It started in 1988, it was very brutal and there was a ceasefire in 1994, but since then, it's been an actual frozen conflict where many young men have lost their lives. In 2016, it really flared up again. And as Aram explains, if this war kicks off in a big way, it could pull in the rest of the world in a very disastrous manner. A lot of people don't even know what Nagorno-Karabakh is. They don't know anything about the war or even where it is, maybe you can put that into context and explain what is Nagorno-Karabakh and why is there a war still technically going on there?
1: So Nagorno-Karabakh is a disputed region uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, And so Azerbaijan borders the Caspian Sea. So we're talking between uh, Turkey and the Caspian Sea, uh, south of Georgia, north of Iran, um, and so these two countries, Armenia and Azerbaijan, were at one point part of the Soviet Union. And so when they were part of the Soviet Union, Nagorno-Karabakh mattered a lot less because they were all part of the same umbrella country. Yeah, uh, if, if that makes sense. And that was—it was just a
0: piece of land in between the two, right?
1: That's correct. Yeah, it's it's at the southern end of the Armenian-Azeri border. Yeah, and so. Uh, It mattered less when the two countries were part of the same... Or when the two states were part of the same country, rather... Um, But with the breakup of the Soviet Union coming about, you know, in the late 80s, a lot of people in the Soviet Union saw the writing on the wall. Um, Armenia and Azerbaijan increasingly fought over this territory, which is um, legally part of Azerbaijan, but ethnically dominant Armenian. And so um, it's a a complicated issue. It was transferred to Azerbaijan um, under the Soviet Union, and... I guess the Armenians always thought that they would get it back at some point in the future. It wouldn't be a big deal until the late 80s when they started to realize that the Soviet Union was going to break up and the Azeris were going to get the territory with predominantly Armenians there. And so this is where the conflict takes an interesting turn because in many circumstances, this would be simply a territorial dispute. But with the Armenians, you have to keep in mind something that, is very forefront, uh, very much on the forefront of many Armenians' minds is the genocide, uh, the Armenian genocide that started in 1915 and ended around 1918, 1920 um, with about one 1.5 million Armenians dead. And so as a member of the Armenian diaspora community myself, I was brought up with stories of the genocide. And so it's something that we all remember. And so when we hear of another country that will suddenly be in charge of an Armenian-dominated area, a country that has... Uh, history especially in the late 80s of uh, anti- Armenian pogroms it starts to scare a lot of Armenians and they start thinking of it with like an ethnic cleansing kind of lens instead of just simply a territorial dispute and that's why the conflict spiraled so quickly in my opinion at least
0: I think it's it's fair to say that Azerbaijan has always been you know very close to Turkey who you know dealt out the genocide. Um, Did that play a part in it as well, would you say?
1: Yeah, that definitely – so Azerbaijan didn't – it existed, but the term Azerbaijan really didn't until more recently. It was something that came about within the Soviet Union. And so to Armenians, Azeris are Turks. And that's what most Armenians refer to Azeris as, is Turks, um, which is interesting because Azerbaijan is also a region in northern Iran, and Azeris from Azerbaijan in Iran who come to Armenia are looked upon as just service employees. You know, that's the guy who who cleans the lobby at your business or whatever. But if it's an Aziri from Azerbaijan, then it's a Turk, and they're the worst thing ever to a lot of these Armenians. And it's just kind of an interesting... Um, dynamic there you know they're both ethnically the same people but depending on where they're from they're either just your friendly neighbor or somebody you look down upon and
0: uh Uh, am i right in saying that nagorno karabakh it was the first kind of region within the soviet union to try and pull away um and have independence autonomy whatever
1: in terms of the soviet union yeah nagorno karabakh was it was a soviet civil war for all intents and purposes i mean there was a a soviet um Red Army unit that was deployed to Karabakh that fought on both sides of the war, the officers on one side, the soldiers on the other. Um, And so for that, in that way, yeah, I mean, if the Soviet Union had survived until 1995 or something, this could have been a a much bigger deal. This could have been, to, to the international community, could have been a much bigger deal because it could have brought about much infighting within the Soviet Union.
0: So what is it about Nagorno-Karabakh? Why did the Armenians suddenly go, right, we need that back? And why were the Azeris or the Azerbaijanis so desperate to keep hold of it?
1: Well, um, from the Armenian side, it was because it's an ethnically Armenian area. Uh, It's also... A very historic area for the Armenians and for the Azeris, it's a large portion of their country, and it's also got a lot of um, a lot of fertile land. So it's an economic thing for the Azeris. It's more of a, a ethnic thing for the Armenians, um, and so both sides—they're both small countries—is the other side of the the equation. Armenia and Azerbaijan are not very large. Um, if uh, if Karabakh was added to Armenia, it would make them roughly equal in size. Azerbaijan would still be a little bit larger. So Armenia has an incentive in terms of sheer landmass. The other benefit for Armenia that comes with Karabakh is more access to Iran's border because Armenia uh, has a closed border with Turkey. Out of solidarity with Azerbaijan, Turkey closed their border with Armenia in the early nineties. So Armenia can only export through Iran or through Georgia. Um, and that doesn't leave a whole lot of options for economic export. So the larger border with Iran would give them – give the Armenians more uh, room to export uh, with the Iranians.
0: When when things really did kick off properly, when, when it all turned from, you know, civil disobedience to clashes to all-out war, how did that happen? And, you know, maybe you can explain a little bit about what it was like because I know it was extremely brutal, right?
1: Yeah, it was. Um, so – Basically, as the Soviet Union started to collapse uh, people on both sides, it was kind of like um in if you've studied the breakup of Yugoslavia, how you know things kind of continued along with momentum for a little bit, and then each ethnic side started to kind of snipe at each other, you know, um, in speeches and things like that. Same kind of thing happened with Karabakh, and what ended up happening there, there was uh, a bunch of Armenians were run out of out of Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, um, in the late 80s. And I could, I gotta look up the date here, um, but anyway, it's not important right now. Anyway, in the late 80s, uh, a bunch of um, Armenians, you know, hundreds, thousands of them were rounded up in Baku. They were surrounded in public buildings, and the Red Army had to be deployed to Baku to protect them um, from the Azeris who were trying to get inside the buildings to, to, to beat them and kill them, um, And because people were so fired up about Karabakh by that point. Um, and it was really, as far as I remember, or as far as I've studied, it was really the Armenian side that started getting... Um, fired up about Karabakh first, they started seeing it as, okay, this is historically part of our country, we're about to become independent without it, you know, that's not okay. And so as the Soviet Union became a looser and looser collection, I guess, as you could see the writing on the wall, as I've said, um, Armenians started to agitate for that land to be part of Armenia proper. And now it's kind of a losing... Pro- proposal in Armenia and modern Armenia to try to run for office without saying that you want Karabakh back because uh, it's become so ingrained in part of the national psyche, um, which is interesting because if you talk to diaspora community Armenians, they'll tell you the most important political issue internationally would be the recognition of the genocide. If you talk to Armenians in Armenia, they'll tell you Karabakh's a bigger issue. Um, yeah. Even younger ones. Um, Which And so I've got cousins in Armenia, and they were telling me that um, when the last war kicked off in 2016, there was a a short four-day war between the two countries, Uh, there were lines around the corner, around the block, at the recruiting stations of young men, and they were all singing the national anthem, and they were all pumped up and ready to go. And on the other side of that equation, in Baku, they ran out of Azeri flags. They sold every Azeri flag in the city. Um, So it's a very nationalistic and intense issue. Both sides have a lot at stake with it. A lot politically, a lot financially, and a lot territorially.
0: Going back a little bit, so the wind of the war, it didn't end, right? That's the thing I think people don't realize. It never actually ended. And it's not like South Korea, North Korea, where it's like, well, we're ending, but we're not fighting. They actually still fight. There's still a front line. It's active. You know, not, it's not Ukraine active or Syria active, but it's active.
1: Yeah, so the, the first war was fought roughly between 88 and 94, um, and it ended with a ceasefire agreement, um, but it ended rather violently. I mean, there were two cities in Karabakh, the two... Unofficial capitals of Karabakh, right? There's an Armenian dominant city and an Azeri dominant city. And Shusha was the aziri dominant city, and Stepanakert is the Armenian dominant city. And when Shusha fell to the Karabakh Defense Force, the Armenians, uh, it was it was basically um, everybody was run out of the city, and the city was dismantled, and all the all the equipment, everything from the city, was brought to Stepanakert, and they rebuilt Stepanakert with it. So that's the atmosphere with which the war ended in '94. Uh, not ended, but froze in 94, rather, there was a ceasefire agreement. Um, and if you know anything about human nature, you know that that's not a way to end a conflict. That's not gonna, that's not gonna stay, if you if the last thing you do is basically ethnically cleanse a neighborhood, it, the people who were cleansed, they're gonna want their retribution.
0: This happened on both sides, right? You know, I've read about there being, before all this, um, Azerbaijanis and Armenians, they would even, you know, there'd be inter-nationality marriages, you know, they got on well, right? And then all of a sudden, this line was drawn.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it, uh, this is a bit of a personal reference here, but my my father uh, just married a woman from Armenia, from Azerbaijan, who is an Armenian from Baku, who fled in the early '90s, and that just goes to show you there were a lot of Armenians in Baku, and there were a lot of Azeris in Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, um, up until this conflict really, and it it really separated the two sides a lot. There aren't a whole lot of Armenians left in Baku anymore, uh, maybe maybe a hundred or two hundred um at the most whereas there were you know tens of thousands before um and the same can be said for Yerevan um so yeah both sides have committed some some atrocities in this war um so there were border clashes between 1994 um and 2016 and that's what you were talking about where like one soldier would die every couple days they'd you know fire off a couple things here and now here and then at each other but it was really 2016 was the biggest war since 1994
0: 1994 ceasefire and then the armenians were basically in full control of nagorno karabakh at that point right
1: that's correct the armenians dominated militarily um and that's for several reasons um there is this this myth among armenians that we are this and by by we i am an armenian uh, that we are this this uh, great you know like like a kurdish almost uh mythos where it's like you know we we run to the mountains when we have to fight and we can fight anybody and I don't know how much truth there is to that what I do know is that when the red army unit was split between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the early 90s the one I was speaking about earlier a lot of the soldiers went to the Aziri side, but the officers went to the who were Russian went to the Armenian side, and so the Armenians right off the bat had not only tanks, but they had well-trained Soviet officers on their side. So that helped the Armenians dominate militarily in the in '94. Um, now that has switched, and in 2016 we saw basically the military situation flip its perspective. Uh, the uh, the Azeris have a much larger military than Armenia now. Um, To put this into terms, I've got the numbers here. Azerbaijan spent uh, $1.55 billion U.S. dollars on defense in 2017, whereas Armenia spent $429 million in 2017. So there's really no comparing the two. Azerbaijan's got oil money coming in Coming out the ass, you know. Uh, The Armenians can't compete with that. And so in 2016, we saw what happens when you basically shoot up a military full of the steroid of money, you know, and you you equip them with drones and aircraft and advanced tanks. And what happened was the Azeris dominated in the conflict and pushed the Armenians off of several uh, key chunks of territory that have left the rest of Karabakh, the interior of Karabakh, very vulnerable to a future offensive. I remember
0: 2016, you know, I'd always followed Nagorno-Karabakh very closely. I just found it a very interesting uh, conflict, the fact that, you know, loads of young men, very young men, especially from the Armenian side, would end up in these trenches for weeks, months, years, barely fighting. And then all of a sudden one would get shot by a sniper or whatever. And then 2016, I I nearly deployed actually, I was going to go there. And then it ended because it was like four days. So whilst on my plans to go... As soon as they were ready, it was like, oh, it's over now. Um, how did that suddenly explode? Because it became very hot very quickly.
1: Yeah. And so I think uh, 2016 is is a good indicator, actually. It's a good litmus test for where we're standing today. Because like we've said before, from 94 to 2016, there were border skirmishes. But they've gotten a lot more intense lately and a lot more uh, flammable, I would say, because um, Azerbaijan is feeling confident now. They've got a military that can defeat Armenians. So from the Azeri side of the equation, now is a good time to hit the Armenians because who knows how long this military superiority will last, right? From the Armenian perspective, Azerbaijan doesn't – their income is based on oil. And with the oil market kind of tanking right now because Saudi Arabia is flooding the market with cheap oil, Azerbaijan has had to make some military cuts. And so from the Armenian perspective, now is a really good time to hit Azerbaijan before their military takes off more.
0: I was, was going to say, how did that spark though? Like in 2016, do you, does anybody know how that started again?
1: Well, both sides blame each other, obviously, but there were, it was border uh, skirmishes. It was just like a gunfire, you know, between two sides, a rifle fire on one side, rifle fire on the other side, was responded to with mortars, which was responded to with artillery. Artillery was responded to with rocket artillery. And before you knew it, we had helicopters flying over. And then uh, the Armenians, the Norgorno-Karabakh Defense Force shot down a helicopter full of Azeri soldiers. And, and that was kind of a big deal. You know, that was like, okay, now things are stepping up to where aircraft are being lost. And that's when a lot of the world started to take notice. I think
0: why this is such an interesting conflict is a place, nobody, not nobody, you know, but it, it's a place that not many people have heard of. Most people have no idea that there's this weird little kind of kind of a separatist war, you know, going on uh, in between there, or a territorial war. Yet when it does kick off immediately, you know, even with the four day war, it was in the news. It became, you know, Turkey straight away said, right, we're back in Azerbaijan. Russia was a bit like, oh, dear, because, you know, they're selling arms to both sides, right? And they have a base in Armenia, I think, as well. Um, Why is it so strategically relevant when the war does kick off there?
1: Well, um, and it goes beyond just statements of of, uh, loyalty, too, from the the Turks and from the Russians. Um, So when the Soviet Union was breaking up, the, si- the two factions, the faction in Armenia and the faction in Azerbaijan, both played off of the separate sides, either the Russian nationalists or the Soviets, you know Gorbachev, to try to get uh, favors and try to get um, military favors. So the Azeris started kissing up basically to Gorbachev, whereas the Armenians kissed up to Yeltsin, and who won that fight was Yeltsin. So when Russia became an independent country, it was very close to Armenia. Um, and one of the first things that Armenia did was join the CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States, which is a defense treaty. It's, among other things, it's a defense treaty. So if Armenia is attacked and they have three treaties, three defense treaties with Russia that I know of, if Armenia is attacked, Russia has pledged to come to their defense militarily. On the other side of the equation, Azerbaijan has a mutual defense treaty with Turkey. So if Azerbaijan is attacked militarily, Turkey comes to their defense, and Turkey is a member of NATO. Um, and so that draws the superpowers into it very quickly, into the conflict. And I think that's why it gets so much attention when it does blow up, is because people in government who are at the top realize that if this goes south for too long, and if nobody pays attention to it, when we do pay attention to it, it might be because it's blowing up beyond control. Um, And both sides have pledged to to, to blow it up beyond control if it goes – if the war continues. I mean the Armenians have said that they're going to target Azerbaijan's uh, energy infrastructure. And Azerbaijan said, "Okay, if you hit our energy infrastructure, we're going to hit Yerevan with long-range missiles. And the Armenians said if you hit Yerevan with long-range missiles, we'll hit Baku with long-range missiles. And so – I mean, one, one doesn't have to be an expert in international affairs to understand how detrimental it would be to have large, long-range missiles raining down on these two very tightly packed cities, um, especially when Yerevan hasn't even been rebuilt from the earthquake they had in the late 80s. I mean, there are still people living in shipping containers in Yerevan. So a lot of that infrastructure is crumbling, and there wouldn't be a whole lot to rebuild it after the war.
0: It's it's very interesting as well, I think, where the whole region and both countries are, it's It very much is, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but to me it seems like the edge of the West meets the edge of the East, you know?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a crossroads. And uh, from Russia's perspective, it's important for Armenia to remain loyal to Russia because that's their southern, or their, from our perspective, their southern border, right? From the Russian perspective, if you're looking at the map with Russia as the center of it, it'd be, you know, the top of their country. Anyway... Um, that's a little confusing without a visual image. Um, so from the Russians, though, it's a, it's a an opening in it, that leads straight up into Georgia, and then from Georgia it goes into the into the uh, into Chechnya and Ingushetia, and that's right into the Russian homeland. So it's important to keep Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan at least somewhat aligned with Russia and with Georgia trying to join NATO that's opened up a hole in their flank. And so that's part of why Russia has sold weapons to both sides in this conflict is because if they don't sell weapons to Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan will hop on the NATO train and then they've got an opening in their flank and if they don't sell weapons to Armenia, Armenia will do the same thing. And so they've got to keep both sides satisfied.
0: So I I don't think it's too dramatic or over the top to say that it's very much in every side's interest that this doesn't go crazy.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It has, it's one of those conflicts that has like that sneaking, the sneaking potential of like, uh, you know, Archduke getting shot in Sarajevo kind of thing where like one thing leads to another and all of a sudden we're all at war and we're wondering what the hell happened.
0: And I, I remember the four day war, I was tracking it like online and after even a few, you know, I think about two years afterwards, there's still stuff coming out. Um, and I know, you know, there was a photo, there was a lot of evidence to suggest that, at one point, Azerbaijani troops. Basically, what I'm saying is it got very brutal. Like there was two, there was two pensioners, two Armenian pensioners in Nagorno Karabakh, um, pictured with their ears cut off and shot dead in their house. Like very gruesome images. And if I believe, I don't know if it was um, completely proven or not. However, I know that basically there was a Yazidi Armenian. His head was cut off, and he was basically delivered in two parts back to you know his his family in Armenia, uh, Nagorno Karabakh. Um, I, that really struck me that in four days, that level of brutality just exploded. I think that says a lot about the history of it, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are Armenian genocide grave sites and memorials that are, that are held by the Azeris now that have been desecrated by Azeri soldiers. And, you know... Political disputes are one thing you would think that a genocide memorial would be off-limits. But no, That, like you said, that shows the level of hatred that there is in this conflict, which is strange because, as we were also saying, they were brothers in arms not that long ago. Um,
0: What what I wanted to talk about is the makeup of the Nagorno-Karabakh Defense Forces. How autonomous are they? Are they just the Armenian army but people that live in Nagorno-Karabakh? Or are they more autonomous than that?
1: So I don't – I mean, officially they're separate, but – um, in terms of realistically, yeah, they're just part of the Armenian military, I would say, in Nagorno-Karabakh. And um, I believe you had actually posted this on Twitter a while back. There was this music video that came out not that long ago of the Aziri border guards. It was like a poppy music video. The Aziri border guards put it out. And um, and it was kind of a, a quaint, fun little video. It was weird. They were singing – they were playing rock and roll on the bow of a patrol boat as it was sailing across a lake. and. Um, But what it was, was it was indicative of the um, covers that both sides use to avoid letting the war spiral, right? So on the Armenian side, the Armenian army doesn't tend to get involved in the skirmishes. It's the Nagorno-Karabakh Defense Force that gets involved in the skirmishes. On the Azeri side, they try to keep the military out of it, and it's the border guards who escalate. Because if the Azeri military escalates, then the Armenian military escalates back. And so it's kind of like an unofficial, you know, but there's a reason the Nagorno-Karabakh Defense Force uses the exact same weapons the Armenian military uses. And that's not only because they're both former Soviet states, but because that's where they're getting their weapons from.
0: What's the structure like for the Nagorno-Karabakh Defense Forces? Say I was an Armenian um, and I lived in Yerevan my whole life. And I was you know, I was like, right, I'm a young man now. Nagorno-Karabakh means a lot to me. I want to go and fight. I want to join them on the front lines. How does one do that? Do you have to be in Nagorno-Karabakh or can you just join up anytime from Armenia proper?
1: I think it would probably, um, regularly at least, or ordinarily, you would probably have to go to Karabakh to, to join up. Um, I mean, there might be somebody in the air event you could talk to who would drive you there. But um, but I think during a, a, a skirmish, like 2016, I think it probably would have been as easy as... as posting on Facebook and getting together with a group of friends, you know. So the the personnel strength estimates of the Karabakh Defense Forces is between eighteen and 20,000 people, uh, but that does swell during uh, during conflict. Um, and they've got about 200 to 300 tanks is about what they're estimated to have, about uh, 200 to 300 T-72s. Um... And so the tanks are actually something the Armenian side has always had in their strength, in their favor, is the Armenians are really good at using tanks in in the mountainous areas of Nagorno-Karabakh. And the Azeris have negated that by buying uh, Harop drone systems from the Israelis. And, uh, and so those came out in 2016 and were, were incredibly effective against the Armenian soldiers. Uh, basically, it's a, a large truck, like a panel van, with, uh, I think, 12 to 15 autonomous drones in it autonomous UAVs, rather, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles in it, and they fire out of the side of the truck with a rocket, go up to altitude and circle the battlefield with a camera on them, looking for the heat signature of a tank or of a a fuel truck or whatever they've been programmed to go after. And then they dive down and explode. It's a suicide drone. Um, And they were very effective against the Armenians because the Armenians didn't have anything that could really stop them uh, because they're small. You, know, you can't really use an anti-aircraft missile on them. Um, they're too small for that. I mean, you could, but if you're Armenia, you don't have that many missiles to spare. So
0: That's really ind- – I find that so fascinating that you know, high-tech weapons used in a low-tech war essentially. You know what I mean? It's it's bizarre to me that these guys are running around in the Caucasus Mountains or wherever, but you've got all this inc- like mad machinery from all over the world kind of fighting each side.
1: Yeah, well, because you know, the Azeris have a ton of oil money, and so they buy stuff from – indirectly from the West, but they, they get um, military assistance from the United States, but they also buy a lot of stuff from the Israelis and the Turks, right? Now, the Armenians don't spend nearly as much money on defense, but they get like, you know, I don't know if you, if uh, this would be a fitting reference or not, but like a Costco discount sort of um, on tanks from the Russians, uh, they get, you know, they buy them in bulk and they, you know, buy, buy 10, get two free kind of thing. Um, the the Russians give the Armenians all kinds of deals. And so the Armenians have a lot of old Soviet tech, whereas the Azeris have a lot of newer high-tech uh, fighting equipment. Um, and so it's interesting to see the two sides trying to make do with what they've got, you know.
0: Obviously now we'll talk in a minute about what happened in Yerevan recently. But the Armenian, the old leader of Armenia and the current leader – of Azerbaijan, um, I read something basically saying it's very much in both of their interests to actually not resolve the problem in Nagorno Karabakh because of money, because of it was helping them keep power. Uh, wh- what do you think of that?
1: Right, it's it's in honestly, it's in both of their interests to kind of, especially on the on the Azeri side, to kick things off now, um, because so on the Armenian side, um, there's been a lot of agitation. From the youth especially about reclaiming parts of Karabakh that were taken by the Azeris in the twenty sixteen war. Um, Armenians see that as like an affront to their to their dignity and to their to their uh, culture.
0: So in the in the twenty sixteen war, the four day war, the Armenians took more lands. Is that right?
1: The Azeris took land.
0: Oh the Azeris took land.
1: That's correct. It was in the northern, I think, sections of, of, of Karabakh. Um, but it was it was at the mouth of of a valley that leads towards Stepanakert, and so once it, once this like these outposts fall, basically at the end of this valley, then it kind of leaves an open trail straight to Stepanakert, and so that's why, um, a lot of Armenians were upset because, in the next war, next time Azerbaijan wants to push there, they'll be within you know a day's fighting time of shelling Stepanakert, um, and then you've got a refugee crisis, and then you've got a military crisis. You know,
0: I think what it does as well, like when that happens, it creates, you know, there's a new drive now. So, you know, young men, right. you know, oh, historically are going to care back. But now it's like, well, they took our land back like three years ago. So we need that. You know what I mean? It creates like this new right. thing to fight for that's more relevant to their era or their generation.
1: It like rips the scab off the wound, basically, you know, and makes it a fresh wound again. And now all the young people want to fight and die for something that really they didn't care about five years ago. Or they might have cared about it, but really, they weren't ready to fight and die for it. Like, you know what I mean?
0: I think it's kind of comparable with, so for example, in uh, in Southeast Turkey, you know, northern Kurdistan, whatever. Um, when I was with the, the Kurdish militants, the youth, the Yirgahash, they were, most of them had never heard of Kobani before it happened and then all of a sudden they were flying over that border to help you know what i mean and all over Jizra, Salopi there was you know resistance of kobani sprayed all over the walls and i thought that's really interesting these kids didn't know this place even existed a year ago
1: yeah exactly it was similar to the to the kobani pole. um and that's also what worries me is that especially in armenia there's not a lot of um economic opportunity, especially for for the younger generation. And so a lot of people join the military, but a lot of people are are restless.
0: Armenia has had basically a pretty bloodless revolution recently, and that has changed a lot of things. They got rid of what was essentially their pro-Russian but very corrupt government, right? Um, Explain what happened there.
1: The guy who was formerly the prime minister of Armenia, now Sargisian, had been... Uh, more or less in power since um, – well, he came into the public eye on Armenia in 1996, so right after the war had ended, two years after the war had, had ceased-fired. Um, and he became the prime minister of Armenia way back in 2007. Um, and he became the president in 2008. And in 2008, uh, protests broke out in Yerevan against uh, um because people thought that the election was fraudulent, the one in which he was brought to power as president. Uh, he was able to crack down.
0: That's sorry. That's the uh, that's the recent one, right?
1: No, this is two thousand eight. Uh, he cracked down.
0: Oh yes, 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 yeah. Because he came, he came, he went, he came back, right? Yeah. Right. So.
1: Exactly. In twenty thirteen, he was reelected, and there were protests in Yerevan again, and across the world in the diaspora community. And then more recently, um, in twenty uh, er- yeah, this year, protests began breaking out because. It was announced that in April that Sargisian would not run for president anymore. He can't be president again. They have term limits. Let's be realistic. But now he's going to be prime minister. Um, and the new position of prime minister had the powers of the president all of a sudden. And who had created this this position? None other than President Sargisian. So he was creating himself a prime minister position to fall into, sort of like Putin-Medvedev um in a way, but with stronger powers for the new prime minister. And Armenians saw what it was. They knew what was going on, and they took to the streets, realizing that this was their opportunity to get rid of him before he became kind of a dictator. Um, So people took to the streets, and at first they announced, okay, we won't, the government announced, we won't uh, have the prime minister position anymore. And the people said, no, we don't want Sargesian anymore at all. We want him to step down immediately. And we want uh, uh, Nikol Pashinyan uh, to be the prime minister. He's an opposition leader, um, He was, and he's been popular among the youth. And so he is now the prime minister of Armenia. He was put in, in power by the Armenian parliament, um, and Sarkisian was forced to step down. And basically what it culminated in was on... Um, in late April, like the last couple of days of April, there were protests I'm sure we all saw, or anybody who was, who was watching Armenia saw, protests in Yerevan. And then all of a sudden, one morning I woke up and I saw soldiers at the front of the protest, Armenian soldiers. And what had happened is the military, they left their weapons behind, but the military had started to defect to the protests. And that's when the prime minister, the president, Sarkisian realized that he didn't have a choice. He had to step down. Or the country was going to fall apart, and then the Russians were going to intervene, like they did in Ukraine. And that's the last thing anybody wanted was uh, Russian intervention.
0: There's an amazing video where, basically, somewhere in Yerevan, all of the troops just jump their barracks. Basically, they just leave. They like the gate opens, and they just fly out. And then there was just photos everywhere of guys, you know, soldiers in full fatigue, head to toe, holding the banners of the opposition. I thought that was. Uh, a big sign, you know, that things could either go yeah. really badly or that, like you said, it, it happened how it did.
1: Yeah, I, when I saw that. I remember thinking like, all right, this is going to go one of two ways right now. And I really hope it goes, you know, way number one. And it did. So we're, we're lucky for now. And what does
0: that mean now for Nagorno-Karabakh? Because I saw this guy, the new prime, was he the new prime minister? Yeah. Yeah. So I saw the new prime minister, the very first thing he did like on his day of first day of official uh, as an official in office was go to Nagorno Karabakh. And I saw the uh, Azerbaijanis were, you know, going crazy about that. Um, how does this change that situation?
1: I think if anything, it makes it more tense. Um, because when you had a pro Russian guy in charge, you had somebody who had an interest in the war continuing to, to sort of smolder, but not extinguished completely, right? Because the Russians are making money off of selling weapons to both sides, and so they can, and the Russians are important to both sides when the war is going on. So if you're a Russian-backed politician, you're gonna go with what Moscow wants on that, and so you're gonna keep the war smoldering. This new guy has an interest in ending the war and ending it on Armenia's terms. And so from his perspective, he's got a bunch of pissed off young Armenians, and Armenians are good at fighting from their perspective, and now is the time, now that Azerbaijan is, is kind of weakened because of the oil oil price drop, now is the time to hit them. And from the Azeri side, we've got a ton of money all of a sudden from their perspective, right? As Azerbaijan, we've got a ton of money and we've got a stronger military. Why don't we hit the Armenians right now? And so, if anything, the, the revolution in 2018, in April of 2018, really just threw more fuel into into the air, I guess, you know, it's like a fuel air bomb and there's more fuel in the mixture now. I would not be surprised if a large scale war broke out between the two countries within the next year or two. Like that would not shock me at all. It
0: sounds to me like when you say, you know, this new guy, he wants to end the war on Armenia's terms, that means fight the war and win it because there is no ending the war on either side's terms, it sounds like.
1: Right. It means fight the war and decisively defeat the Aziris so they cannot contest Nagorno-Karabakh again.
0: That's very different from let's have a peace agreement.
1: And it's also very different, yeah, from let's maintain the status quo. It's much more violent. And and as I was saying, you know, they they sold out of flags in in Baku. I mean – armenians are nationalistic and fired up but so are the Azeris. you know it's not like one side has a has a monopoly on nationalism here like both sides are very fired up and like you pointed out both sides have resorted to ethnic cleansing and and brutal crimes against humanity very quickly in these conflicts
0: that would be a hideous war i think it'd be awful um, what what is your thoughts? I I don't know how widespread this is, but I I was in some kind of rabbit hole on the internet the other day reading about this, and there were people um, saying that they, there were people trying to reframe what would be a future Nagorno Karabakh conflict as one that could be sectarian. So they were saying, oh, it would be like you know the Crusaders, you know, because obviously uh, Armenians are all what Christian Catholic, is it?
1: Uh Armenians are. Uh- yeah the Armenian Orthodox Church um
0: and then Azerbaijanis are obviously you know they're all mostly Muslim um right. what do you do you think there's any weight in that that they could they would try and spin it that way because I have seen you know on social media especially diaspora kind of people who seem to get the most riled up ironically framing it as that a little bit
1: yeah you know what's interesting is you point out that it was the diaspora community that gets the most fired up about it being a um a religious conflict a sectarian conflict and yeah that's what I've seen too is from the diaspora community. They immediately start making it about you know Christianity versus Islam, and and um, I don't know how much that plays into the official reasoning behind the war. I don't really think it does. I mean, I think it. If the war were to explode, I would not be surprised if both sides became suddenly more religious, um, as happens in war. I mean, Saddam Hussein embraced Islam in the you know after the Gulf War and put Allahu Akbar on his flag because he realized that he needed to co-opt the religious movement so I think that both sides might do the same thing if the war really explodes and at least on the Armenian side it's probably less likely because um Armenia's got an interest in at least being ostensibly secular whereas Azerbaijan can be uh, they, they can get assistance from Turkey even if they're not towing the secular party line, right? Because Turkey isn't either anymore. Um, Armenia, one of their biggest backers, strangely, is India. Um, And India has an interest in Armenia being more or less secular. Uh, And of course, India's support for Armenia comes out because Pakistan, out of support for Azerbaijan, doesn't recognize Armenia's existence as a state. So Armenia is not fully recognized at the UN because Pakistan doesn't recognize Armenia. So in response, India supports Armenia. It's actually kind of funny.
0: That reminds me of, I know it's random, but in like Northern Ireland, for example, um, all the Irish Republicans or most of them are pro-Palestine. The IRA always had this kind of uh, brotherhood with the PFLP and all of that kind of stuff. So you'll see the Irish Republicans, you know, waving their Palestine flags, as they have done for years. And then I've been on the once I went on to the uh, you know, the the Unionist side, the the people that want to stay a part of Britain, and they had um they had this little camp called the Twadell camp. It was this little caravan where they'd stay every night. Um and they had Israel flags. And I said to one of them, I was like, Why have you got that? And this guy was really honest, he said, Look, they've got Palestine flags, we've got Israel flags. And yeah, and like ironically. Uh, and you know, I'm sure loads of people scream at me for this, but I saw it in my own eyes. You go into the unionist areas, and there's quite a lot of swastikas sprayed up on the walls. You know, so I was like, how ironic! What a what a absolute mess! You know, so it just I don't know. That kind of reminded me of that where other countries just become it becomes really juvenile.
1: It does, and you know, I see that. It happens on Twitter now too, and that's why I think it's interesting that you brought up that social media was like the main channel through which you saw the sectarianism coming up. Um, because I think a lot of people around the world and a lot of people in these countries too, you know, younger people who are involved in political issues for the first time in their lives, and and some of them for the first time in history for these age groups, because they're able to see politics happening on Twitter now, right? And people treat these conflicts like it's a game, like you're watching a sporting match. Like they're cheering for their side, and their side is the good side, the other side's the bad ti- side. Boo, Azerbaijan, yay Armenia kind of thing. And it really, it erases some of the intricacies of these conflicts, and it and I think it dumbs down the conflict. And I think it actually makes things potentially worse.
0: Another problem you get is like armchair analysts who, we know everything, I've been tracking this this social media page, and... It's like, mate, it's really, you know, I I, I love like kind of armchair research and, you know, analysts to a degree, but it's like you do have to go on the ground to get the full pitch. We need each other, like, you know, like we need, you know, like analysts back home looking at whatever. And then I think the ground reporting is also very important, but it seems to me now there's a rift. It's like, well, no, I know more, and I'm, I'm, I'm definitely guilty of it. I've been like, oh, shut up, you've never been there, how would you know? Which is a really stupid thing to be like, but you know, I think we, we do it, and I think social media has created this rotten rift where wars do just almost pale into like, well, I'm on this side, I'm on that side because I saw it.
1: And most conflicts that we've seen in the world, a lot of conflicts today that wouldn't have been internationalized before, are very internationalized. I think because of social media, and I think because of the ease of access of. Uh, social media for these conflicts. I mean, like you were saying, you know, there's all these armchair analysts who have never been to the conflict or who have never you know, you can read a thousand tweets on Syria on Twitter from experts, but that doesn't make you an expert.
0: Nothing you know? does. Nothing does. Being that doesn't either.
1: No, exactly. That makes you you've read a lot, you've seen a lot. But until you can actually and that's that's why I guess when you get a PhD they ask you to do something for the community and, and contribute to that community you know it's kind of the same thing it's like oh okay you can you can read it but can you write it can you actually contribute and a lot of these people can't they just contribute to the noise and that's i i understand the desire there and and the, the feeling like you need to s- express your side of the conflict or your side of what you see in the conflict. But I really wish, especially with issues of war and and peace and, and life and death, that people, at least on social media would take a moment to remember that like, it's not just a game for some people on the other end of this. Like it's, it's people are dying and, uh, and your words could lead to somebody's death on, on social media. You know I mean? We saw, in Syria, there were people feeding coordinates of rebel locations to Russian me- social media accounts, Russian me- Ministry of Defense accounts back in 2013, 2014, or 2015, 2016, rather, and seeing them get bombed, like in Aleppo. And I could see the same thing happening between Armenia and Azerbaijan. I mean, social media is so prevalent now that, yeah, any conflict there is bound to become internationalized very quickly.
0: That, that, I, def- I agree with you 100% there, because like you said, all the people just want to contribute to the noise. It's more than that now, you know, like it's not, you know, like there used to be this term, oh, IRL, you know, on a message board, oh, I met them IRL in real life. That doesn't exist anymore. It's all there. You know, it's the real life is a part of the social media. It's on the phone. It's everywhere. So that is your real life, you know, and people say, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't get bent out of shape about some guy on social media. It's like I shouldn't or anyone shouldn't if they weren't having an impact. Now we're starting to see analysts who have obviously got a biased opinion who have never been on the ground, ending up advising people at the White House. That, to me, is terrifying. The same way it would be terrifying if a journalist went, I've been there, you know, they treat me really nice. We obviously didn't see any war crimes um, because they wouldn't show you that. And then they end up, you know, advising them. Now, that would be wrong as well. However, it's happening. And it's just, it's bizarre to me. It's really bizarre.
1: Well, yeah, and there's a reason most, you know, uh, competent intelligence agencies, be it the CIA or MI6, whatever, they'll have analysts and they also have people on the ground. And there's a reason for that, you know? I mean, it's if it was easy enough to do with just analysts back home in DC or back home in Langley, then they would do that, but it doesn't work that way. So, you exactly, like you're saying, you gotta have both sides of it.
0: And there is there is a problem as well, though, like, I think uh, Aris raised it. He was on some, like, big thread, he was talking about Syria, and he was saying the more he goes there, the more he realizes he knows nothing about it. And, you know, that's a guy who's been in and out of Syria for years. And I thought that's really interesting as well, because you have to look at your own as a reporter. Like I have to look at my own self and other reporters do as well. And it's like, OK, you've been on the ground. I know this. I know that. But you even then, you, you don't get you will never get the full picture of anything, you know, which is why it's annoying that everybody thinks they have it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people are yes. calling themselves experts. I just think you should never say that. <laughs> you should never say that, you know.
1: No, I have way more respect for somebody who addresses an issue and says, I've read much about this, I've studied this a lot, but I don't know everything. Here's my take on it. Than somebody who comes into the room and says, I'm the greatest motherfucker who ever lived and I eat shit and sleep Palestine. Like, no, come on, man you don't know what you're talking about like you might know more than the average person but
0: the people on the ground fighting it actually know the most you know that's the real that's the reality Or, or not even fighting the people getting a fucking bullet through their window while they're trying to eat dinner and just be calm they're the people that actually know the most you know
1: exactly exactly and they're not the ones shooting their mouths off on twitter typically either definitely not no I think talking about like social media I think
0: maybe you can explain a little bit about you know explain what you do because I know that your your you the research you do is what I love like the very intricate
1: Yeah so I mean right now I'm um waiting to get into grad school so officially I'm not doing much but what I do with my spare time is I I monitor um conflicts especially in the middle east in syria and iraq are my two areas of expertise but also in eastern europe and i utilize both open source intelligence techniques um a lot of stuff like what bellingcat does you know geolocating um uh sites of bombings and things like that but i also try to um try to follow the more political side of these conflicts i try to to look into the history of these conflicts so i do a mixture of traditional reading from books but i also um make maps, you know, I'll I'll use ArcGIS to make a map of a conflict to make it make more sense to myself and then I share that with other people. Because I found that um and you've said this, I think you you said this on the War College podcast is that, you know, people I like to say with conflicts that everyone's an idiot, you know, that everybody everybody's just dumb and they don't really care about Israel Palestine or they don't care about Syria, but people do care. And it's just, it's really complicated. It's very complicated. So if you take the time to make somebody a visual aid or you take the time to show somebody in Google Earth how they can look at refugee cars parked at the border of Kobani in 2014, you know, that sticks with them a lot more than one of us just saying, actually, there were a lot of refugees at the border, you know? And so I try to I try to come up with ways that it's interactive, that the information I'm giving is interactive and you can kind of come to the conclusion yourself. Um, and so part of that, I've been working on curriculum, and I'd like to try it out on a probably a college class someday, be like a voluntary college class, but a history class that covers the 21st and 20th century that you, you learn in reverse. You know, you start day one, everybody comes to class and kind of gives a list of current events, and uh, and you just work backwards in those current events and see how they became – Where they are today. By the end of the term, it could be 1940, it could be 1840, wherever you get, you know, in the timeline. But that way, you get with something. You start with something that's relevant, and you move backward in time to something that's less relevant. But that way, it sticks with the students a little bit better. And um, so, a lot of the work I do is to try to come up with uh, methods that I can use to teach these students um, interactive methods and things like that.
0: With with this whole popular front podcast, I keep saying, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm planning. I want to do something else with it, and I do but I don't know if it's even achievable but I just wish that all of the sniping and horrific, you know, um, level of competitiveness within journalism and researching and journalism I wish wish that could just all come together without the bad bits and like people like you and me like if I was like, right, Aram I want to go to Nagorno-Karabakh I need this, this, this. You know what I mean? We could all work together. It would be so good. I, I'm, I'm sure you know a lot of people are doing that now. Like, um, you know, New York Times. I think Maliki, I think Brown. His name is. He, he does excellent stuff with videos, and he works at Bellingcat and and stuff like that. I, ju- I just, I don't know. I, I just think there's got to be better than what's going on right now. You know.
1: I think so too. I think it's, it's multifaceted. I think part of it is that a lot of this technology is really new. And I was watching a talk the other day. Uh, it was a DFR Lab. Talk through the Atlantic Council, and the guy was saying that basically, you know, with every advent in communications technology, there has been a period afterward wherein bad people, for lack of a better term, can take advantage of that medium. You know, with with the written word, there were religious wars. With the book, there, you know, yeah, with the book, there were religious wars. With with newspapers, there was yellow journalism and the Spanish American War. You know, with the radio, we had Hitler. Internet is just yeah, it's going to suck for a little bit until we can all figure out how to cope with it. Um, and the other side of it, I think you're completely right. I think that there are more people today for for every, you know, mouth breather out there who's shouting on Twitter about something they don't understand. There's typically somebody who's being quiet and studying, you know, and there's somebody who's, who's learning. And, and every once in a while, you come upon somebody who knows this stuff really well. And I think that it's just a matter of maybe building a website or building a platform that allows people to collaborate easily, you know, And I don't know, maybe something like Twitter, because the nice thing about Twitter is that people can put out little bits of information very quickly. The thing that sucks about Twitter is you can't edit your posts to correct them. So you're stuck either standing by something wrong and shitty that you said or deleting it and looking like an idiot, you know. Um, And there's nowhere to like – you can't really – there's nothing on twitter there there you can be verified on twitter but nothing would ever tell me that you are a journalist who has been to turkey who has been to these countries right nothing would tell me that over over me who hasn't been to turkey there's no indicator that, that i haven't been to turkey on my twitter profile there's no indicator that of a, a person's level of expertise i guess in a subject and so everybody's given like a, an even playing field and i think that's really detrimental to the to the study in general but i think that um it can. I, yeah. I've seen some studies with Bellingcat, you know, where they do these open source things where everybody's welcome to join in, where they figure things out weeks in advance, way before the the real experts the quote unquote, real experts do, right? Uh, and it's it's fascinating because I believe that the internet is one of the greatest technological breakthroughs in human history. I mean, it's essentially a hive mind. We can combine humanity's mind and its thinking capacity and its compassion capacity, capacity you know, into one. It's just a matter of getting it there now.
0: I think the culture, I think I agree, but I think culture has changed too much for it to ever get there personally. Um, Because like I remember growing up on the internet, you know, I really grew up on the internet on message boards and forums and I loved all that. You know, I'd spend hours and hours and hours. The internet was open to you and now it's still open. But imagine, like, it's like a circle within a circle. Imagine, like, the internet is this huge circle, but everybody spends their time in the small circle now because of, in my opinion, social media. There's a kind of illusion that you are learning more because the stream is constant, but not really. I I don't think, you know, you need time and you need more detail.
1: Yeah, well, I I think I agree with you. I think that that's what we need, honestly, because people are... You know, people are not only are they sticking to social media more, but traditional media. I mean, somebody shot up a newspaper office yesterday. People hate the media these days. A lot of people do, and they shouldn't. They really shouldn't. But a lot of people are, even if they're not going to shoot members of the media. You know, like this crazy guy. They're not crazy. This guy did yesterday. there's still a lot of people have like this aversion to the media. Well, the media lied. The New York Times lied to get America into Iraq. Therefore, everything they ever say will be a lie. And I think that if we had more of a mixture of traditional media, on-the-ground media, with Bellingcat-type stuff as like a uh, a regular occurrence in our our news media, I think a lot more people would be likely to believe what the media is saying and to be less skeptical of it because they could see for themselves why those things are true, you know?
0: I know that um, with the sarin, the sarin attacks in Syria, um, like Assad dropping, you know, gas on his own people, and a lot of pro-Russian people, uh, you know, will say, "Oh, Belinkat are liars," and and they say, "Well, if we're liars, then you know, here's the evidence. We put it out there in real time, basically." I, I sound like a Bellingkat fanboy, I reckon, but I, I read them a lot, and I, you know, I, what they're doing, I think, is quite honest, you know, because it's like whether whether you know, and I actually don't like the Atlantic Council. I'm not a fan of the Atlantic Council at all and they're very heavily linked to bellingcat but i do believe that like the ethos of what bellingcat are doing it's it cannot be lying you know you can't really lie because it's like well there it is now that doesn't mean to say that there could be someone who's a bit corrupted and then start bending what they put out here and there that would be awful but i think a lot of their information if you want to pick it apart you can
1: yeah exactly and that's i've tried to to try to mirror their um their way of of teaching people, uh, their way of journalism, with my own writing. I write for a website um, called thefoldagap.com. dot com, and um, we try to not just teach you something about a conflict, but we try to walk you through it so that you can see it happening and in, in, you know in real time. So, for instance, there was a, a really bad car bombing in uh, in Syria last year uh, in Aleppo, and so I you know geolocated the location of the bombing, and I. I walked people through the footage of the bombing to show them which vehicle it was. You know, I showed them how, you know, it was that vehicle that, that had the bomb in it and everything. And people really took to that article versus an article where I just tell them what happened. They're going to say, well, how did you know you weren't there? You know, you you didn't see it. How You don't really know that. And it's like, well, no, I realistically, you no, I wasn't there. So I don't know 100 percent for sure. But here's why I'm 99 percent sure this is what happened.
0: In situations like that, even being there, you probably learn less actually, because I, I, you know, I've been in areas where something will just bang, something goes bang, and you're just like shit, and you you want to yeah. find cover, like you can't really take in all the information like that, <laughs> you know. I think in situations like that, I'm, I'm going back on, you know, I'm proving my own theories wrong here, but but I think that's a good thing. But like I think in situations like that, you know, when a carbon goes off, you probably can get more information from looking at it the way you said you looked at it, you know, because. If you're there, you're either getting fried or you're running off. Right, lastly, I just want to end uh, again on um, a thing about Armenia. What do you think? I know you said you think it's quite possible that a war could happen, and you know, within the next year. What do you think a renewed conflict in Nagorno Karabakh could look like?
1: Um, I think it could either look like another 2016 border skirmish that that you know just ratchets up the tension a little bit more, or I think it could look like um, not the scale of Syria, but it could look like a smaller Iran Iraq war you know, because both countries are smaller, but they're both going to have their conventional militaries. It would look like a, like a quote, traditional military conflict. It would be the kind that most Americans might be more able to follow, right? Because there wouldn't be this insurgent group on the ground and that rebel group. It would be basically military versus military. Um, And the problem with that is military versus military means lots of civilian casualties. Because insurgencies cause civilian casualties, but So do conventional wars, and conventional wars just cause them on a much more industrial scale. And so I think that another war between Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, could look incredibly uh, bloody, incredibly ugly, and it could become internationalized very quickly. If not with military uh, assistance from overseas, it could definitely have um, military equipment being sold to both sides, and uh, that would be a bad thing for everybody involved.
0: There's one other thing I forgot that I definitely want to mention. Actually, um, so in Nagorno Karabakh, um, it's not. I know it's. You know they don't. They don't like to talk about this too much. But I read. Um, from the, I forget who wrote it, but the guy was like very legitimate. Um, when the four-day war broke out, this guy wrote a piece saying so. It was something like this is what you need to know about Nagorno Karabakh. Like, and he was saying that actually with the Nagorno Karabakh troops, a lot of awful stuff happens that they do to them their own you know i think there was an example where a commander on the nagorno karabakh front line i think he he shot his own soldier or something like that and there was actually quite a lot of suicides happen which get masked as oh this guy got shot and it's like no that boy killed himself because he was in these horrific conditions i mean you've seen the images it looks like world war one trenches uh, you know in in some areas in the mountains i mean do do you know anything about that
1: I mean, I, I haven't read any, any studies on it or anything, but I have definitely seen, yeah, that like one side will say, oh, the Azeri sniped a guy last night and then it starts to come out on social media. Actually, no, this guy had a lot of issues with being at the front line constantly, and it's terrible there. I mean, if being in the Armenian army is bad enough because they don't get very much funding, I can't imagine what it's like to be in the Karabakh Defense Force in a World War I style. It's probably a lot like World War I. You know? I'm sure the trench foot abound. I mean, it's not something I would trade my life for any day um and so i have nothing but sympathy for the people stuck on both sides of the front line there um and i can see why that would drive one to take their own life after a while
0: uh god i mean imagine that sitting out there 12 hours a day a uh, post where probably not a single shot gets fired for a week you know how often is there clashes right now in they Karabakh? is it once a week or is it you know not not quite as much as that uh,
1: i'm trying to trying to find you the figure here um it looks like an Ar- Armenian soldier was killed on January 7th of this year. And then on February 7th, somebody was killed. So it looks like maybe once a month rather than once a week. Um,
0: Lastly, um, where can people find your work? And uh, is there anything you, you know, any links you want to direct people to?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, if you want to, I haven't been updating my website very much lately um, because I've been kind of busy getting into school and, and studying other things, but um my writing is available on uh, thefoldagap.com. That's T H E F U L D A G A P.com. Um, and I am on Twitter uh, under my name, R M Shabanian, and it's at R M Shabanian. So that's A R A M S H A B A N I A N. My current screen name is Regime Change Ghoul. It is a name I was given by a, a tanky a while ago. Um, because I was not supportive of Bashar al-Assad's government, so I am a regime-change ghoul now.
0: I dare you not be uh, in support of that hell.
1: Yeah. (laughs) All right, man. Thank you very much. Cool, all right.
0: That was Aram Shabanian talking about Nagorno-Karabakh, the kind of hidden war in between Armenia and Azerbaijan and how if it does kick off, it will explode in a very big way. You can find him on his twitter as he said at the end of the interview for all things popular front follow me that's at jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n if you like what you hear on the episodes consider supporting us on patreon for five dollars a month you can get extra bonus episodes that you won't hear anywhere else five dollars that's what one coffee a month so you know if you like the show it's probably worth it We've been getting some really good reviews on the iTunes, so if you can, subscribe and review it, because that will help the podcast get more popular and hopefully help it grow into something a little bit more than a podcast. Um, one of the reviews we got the other day, it said this is like crack for war nerds, and that's exactly what I wanted to do you know, with the podcast, so I'm glad people like it. Thanks very much to the $30 a month Patreons they are helping this carry on, keeping it moving, helping me pay for the server, all of that stuff. Uh, they are Andrew Stover, Joanne Stocker, and Sergey Slipchenko. Thanks very much. Music in this episode, the intro, as always, is by Home. The outro is by Son of Old, a mate of mine. His SoundCloud is soundcloud.com son dash of dash old. And this episode was sponsored by thedefencepost.com. Defence with an S. Go and check them out. Bye.